We've heard stories about World War II a million times, and if you're like me, you are fascinated every single time. I'm not sure what it is about World War II or war in general that gets a person going, but I know I'm not the only person out there who loves learning about this stuff, and perhaps it makes me a little bit naive, or maybe I even come off a little uneducated and possibly ignorant, but I don't remember learning any of this information in school. I remember learning the basics like Hitler ordered the death of millions of people. And I remember that we were in a depression, so they sent us off to war, but I don't remember learning how that actually brought us out of the depression or anything like that. Granted, I do have ADHD and I didn't know it at the time, so it's possible I was daydreaming and didn't realize I was daydreaming, but I also find this fascinating, so I have a feeling I would have at least paid attention. Probably. Anyway, if you know everything about the start of World War II, great for you, Uh, but I didn't, and I know others out there are just like me who barely touched on World War II during their lengthy World War II series in social studies every single year in school. I tried to break it down for you, and thanks to the World War II History Museum websites, I was able to stitch together some information for those of us who live in a country that tries to literally tear the essential learning materials from our history books. Now, I will make a side note here. This is not about the entire war, okay? I am just giving some background leading into the final part of the episode. So if anybody wants something a little more in depth eventually in the future, hit me up. It may be random. It may at times be heart-wrenching, touching, or humorous. But these stories all have one thing in common. These are all things I find interesting. In 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. Just before this, though, he had several electoral wins with the Nazi party. And as most, if not all of us know, his rise to power was about conquering Europe in order to benefit the Aryan race, or in other words, super, super white people. His first attack was on Poland in 1939, when he ordered his army to round up all of those who did not fit into his definition as desirable. These people, the ones that they rounded up, were considered life unworthy of life. And that is a quote by Hitler, okay? And it was more than just Jewish people of the land. It was others like Slavs, homosexuals, and Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, among other groups as well. Now, obviously, someone like Hitler doesn't just suddenly take over, right? He didn't just get into power one day and everything went to hell in a handbasket. So what happened? Well, because of the support he was able to rally from the German officer class and then the millions of normal citizens like you and I through the German officer class, from what I understand, He was able to become the head of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or as we know it, the Nazi Party, a party he organized after returning home from World War I as a wounded soldier. So let's go back a little bit. In 1919, the Treaty of Versailles 
was signed, which placed blame on Germany for the start of World War I and gave the Germans a few repercussions for their actions. These repercussions included losing some of their overseas territory, huge reparation payments, and even demilitarization, forcing them to give up submarines and the Air Force. All in all, the treaty was an embarrassment for Germany, and most Germans, obviously including Hitler, felt very outraged and betrayed by this because they felt that the treaty was just placing blame and not tackling the actual issues that led to the war in the first place. And so this treaty is part of what helped Hitler's rise to power because much like the U.S. in the 1930s, Germany was now, after having signed the treaty, facing quite the economic distress after having to pay around $33 billion in war damages. So I can sort of see why people were wanting to maybe give him a chance, even if they weren't 100% on board with everything Hitler said. They understood his anger and his want for change. And honestly, at this point, I don't see how anybody can be at fault for that. I think about September 11th, 2001, and the attacks on the U.S. and the World Trade Center. It's one of those situations where if you were alive and old enough to understand what was happening at the time, you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you heard the news. Fear overtook the nation. And as a freshman in high school in a very small town, I was a big ball of emotions. So many people died. I was only one person and I was 14. And how could I make a difference for anybody? Thinking about it now and about how much it changed all of our lives in some way, when a nation goes through a tragedy, there is a type of anger and it's not like how you get angry with the people you dislike or how you get angry with a friend or family member. It's a national anger. It's emotional. It's almost uncontrollable. It's kind of a mob mentality. Like, I can call my brother names, but if you do, I'm going to hurt you. So you best hide from me type of an anger. And that's what happened. And you know, to this day, there are still many people who target Muslims because of what happened even though the vast majority of those of us who love Islam are only for peace and not war. And that's real Islam. The kind where you commit suicide to kill a bunch of people may seem like a majority, but it's actually a rather small group of people. And that's not real Islam. Of course, the news media likes to put targets on the backs of Muslims everywhere, though. But going back to Germany... I think that when they were completely blamed for everything with World War I, it was kind of like that national anger. You know, everything that I read said it was embarrassment. I'm sure it was a little bit. But I can see how people got very upset. I would have been. I'd be like, oh, okay, the whole entire world was fighting in a war and it's our fault. You know, like, um, so I, I understand so far 
um, how people want to give Hitler a chance because he's different. He's not the last person, you know, who was in power. He's not how they've been doing things forever. And due to the poor economy of the time, Hitler started having meetings and gatherings in Munich to problem solve. It was decided that there would be a new German order because he hated the democratic regime. With this new order was the demolition of democracy, and all citizens were to unselfishly serve the state, sacrificing their individual rights for the betterment of all and getting Germany back on a good track. Okay, that like right there, um, I can sort of see why people still would be on board because they're like, yeah, it's our country, it's our home. But like as an outsider looking in, that sounds very cultish. Um, okay. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, going back more fully, the aim of the party, uh, the Nazi party was to, and I quote, seize power through Germany's parliamentary system, install Hitler as a dictator while creating a community of racially pure Germans loyal to their leader who would lead them in a campaign of racial cleansing and world conquest. Hitler blamed Germany's former leadership as well as their lack of restrictions over the Jewish and communist minorities for the weak state that the country was in. He is quoted for saying, during a speech in 1922, there are only two possibilities, either victory of the Aryan or annihilation of the Aryan and victory for the Jew. Also claiming, mankind has grown great in eternal war. It would decay in eternal peace. That's kind of a red flag to us now, looking back, right? But at the time, again, people wanted change. And this man had all these promises of change and a better Germany. So still, I can kind of see, you know, everybody's vulnerable right now. So it's like the best time to get them on board with what you want to do with your agenda I'm having an issue with what he's saying, though. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know how what I would have felt back then if I were living in Germany and he was rising to power. I'd like to think I'd be the same as I am now and not love what he was suggesting. For example, I didn't love the Red Hat regime either, and I did my best to be the opposite of what that party proposed the whole four years that that president was in office, and I still stand against what that party proposes, even though they are trying their best to hang on to that little bit of power that they had in the first place. I would like to think that people in the U.S. would not have gone for the euthanizing of an entire race or religion of people, but, I mean, they cheered for and supported a teen-killing protesters with an assault rifle, and they still believe that immigration is the biggest problem that we have in our country today, believing that international newcomers are the ones who cause all of our murders, rapes, and drug problems because of one frumpy man. So, yeah. Anyway, the Jewish people represented everything that the Nazi party was against finance capitalism, which the Nazi party believed was controlled by powerful Jewish financers, 
international communism because Karl Marx was the leader of the German Communist Party at the time and was Jewish. And modern cultural movements like psychoanalysis and, oh boy, swing music. By 1921, the Nazi party had its own newspaper, its own flag, and its own army of stormtroopers. The stormtroopers were said to be made up of unemployed World War I vets. By 1923, there were more than 15,000 stormtroopers with access to hidden weapons. Hitler decided that it was time in that same year to try to overthrow the government by coup in Bavaria. And he actually wound up in prison where he wrote his famous book, Mein Kampf, or in English, My Struggle. This book spoke of his feelings toward minorities using colorful language and telling his ideas that he had been previously propagating. By 1932, the Nazi party was the largest in the Reichstag, or what is known as the lower house of parliament. And by the next year, president Paul von Hindenburg appointed Hitler as the chancellor of Germany due to a fire in the Reichstag, 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 sorry, German people, Reichstag, right, Reichstag, right. Due to the fire in the building in Berlin set by a young Dutch communist, Hitler was able to convince von Hindenburg that freedom of press, freedom of speech, and freedom to hold assemblies needed to be stopped by an emergency decree. Police were given permission to arrest citizens for basically no reason at all, and normal regional government authorities were no longer in charge. Hitler's national regime was. And basically, right away, Hitler started to demolish the democratic government while also imprisoning and or killing any of his opponents or anyone that he saw as a threat to his power. The next year after Hindenburg passed away, Hitler jumped into the ring, declaring himself leader, or as they called him, Fuhrer, Chancellor, and commander-in-chief of the armed forces, expanding the army and creating a new air force, which violated the Treaty of Versailles. So now, here's where Hitler does some good. I know, hard to believe, right? <laughs> he was very ambitious about public works programs, which included building the German Autobahn, which, for anybody who doesn't know exactly what that is, it's a federally controlled access highway. These are famous today for having stretches with no real speed limit. So you can just drive super fast from what I understand. And apparently the Autobahn assisted in restoring prosperity to Germany. Hitler suppressed the communist party and got rid of several stormtroopers for their violent demonstrations in the street. These demonstrations were said to have alienated or, in other words, isolated the middle class people of the time. And still at this time, Hitler's followers saw him doing only good things, improving the country, the economy, etc. Many, if not basically most, of the German people were in support of Hitler at this time. And who wouldn't be? Honestly, right now I feel conflicted, kind of, because... Though I know Hitler was a tyrant and totally mentally disturbed, I find myself thinking, oh, well, he wasn't all bad. 
And I'm sure that that was his plan all along. They trust him. And if they didn't before, they're starting to now. By 1938, Hitler was keeping his promise of expanding the national borders. He teamed up with Nazis in Austria, and together they orchestrated the Anschluss. I think I said that right. Or the adding on of Austria to Germany. And in a more aggressive move, Czechoslovakia was forced to surrender to the um, Sudeten, Sudetenland, which is a mountainous borderland occupied by mostly full-blooded Germans. The Czechs tried to get help from others to avoid the war, but to my understanding, they did not really get the help that they wanted. I'm not sure if this means it didn't come the way they'd preferred or if it meant they literally were like, too bad, so sad, peace, betches. So now that we have some background on the start of World War II and the why Hitler and the how did Hitler, let's get into the herstory. <laughs> I like to think I'm funny. Let's get into the herstory I get to tell you today. I'm really excited and I hope that you are too. It's possible you've heard of this amazing woman I'm about to tell you about and whether you have or have not, I think you're in for a treat either way. As I said before at the beginning, we are all aware that Hitler ordered the death of millions of people, but to put it into perspective for you, World War II started in September of 1939 and it ended in September of 1945. That's six years. Six years of death. Six years of euthanizing entire groups of people. That's right. I said groups. Obviously, the Jewish people were a large number of the deaths, but there were other groups of people too. And that six years had so many people die that they've only been working with approximate numbers since the end of the war. But as time goes on, data is changing thanks to scholars, Jewish organizations, and government agencies. This has been no simple task though. The Nazis, who were normally great at keeping records, did not keep many, if any, records of the numbers of people who were murdered in the Holocaust. Today, these groups of Smarties who are working together to find the information for every single person deceased in or out of the concentration camps by the hands of the Nazis are having to use census records among other governmental documentation pre-war to determine the actual number of deaths in the targeted groups. So as of today, here are the counts that they are at. There were around 6 million Jewish people, around 7 million so Soviet citizens, around 3 million Soviet prisoners of war, around 1.8 million non-Jewish Polish people, and this includes between 50,000 and 100,000 elites from Poland. 312,000 Serbian civilians, this includes Bosnian, Croatian, and Herzegovinian, up to or around 250,000 disabled peoples living in institutions between 
250,000 and 500,000 gypsies, around 1,900 Jehovah's Witnesses, and at least 70,000 repeat criminal offenders, hundreds or possibly thousands of homosexuals, and lastly, an undetermined amount of German political opponents. So as of right now, the very lowest death count of those victimized by the Nazis is at approximately 18,683,190 people. That's at least 7 million more than the Nazi party originally claimed that were deceased by the end of the war. Originally, they had said 6 million Jews and 5 million others from various groups. Thankfully, these professionals started taking up the responsibility of double-checking the math skills of the Nazi party because, as I said, these numbers are still rising and will most likely continue to do so for some time. So we know that, at very least, 18 million plus people died. So when you think about it, it's really amazing anybody survived the Holocaust at all. But... The subject of part two of this episode did survive, and her story is so interesting. Well, pitter-patter, let's get at her! Ava Moses Kor was born on January 31st, 1934 in Ports, Romania, which is a small village located in the southeastern part of the country next to the Black Sea. It's not a border town, but it's close to the area that borders Bulgaria, just so you can kind of get an idea if you look at a map where they were. Ava was born to Alexander and Hafa Moses. She had three sisters, Edith, Alice, and Miriam. At this time, not only were her parents worried about the Nazis, but they were worried on a regular basis for the safety of their family because of the views towards Jewish people by others. So Ava and her sister Miriam shared a very specific, very special bond. They were twins, and when they were just six years old, their village ended up being occupied by Hungarian Nazi armed guards. After four years of occupation, which makes... Ava and Miriam 10 now, Ava's family and a few other families were transferred to a slum. After living there for a few weeks, they were transported again, but this time to Auschwitz, a concentration camp known to be the worst one and named after the city in Poland where it was located. According to the Illinois Holocaust Museum, this was a 70-hour trip without any food or water. The families were forced to ride in cattle cars of a train. Upon arriving at Auschwitz, Ava's family tried to stay together, but eventually guards forced them to separate. This would be the very last time that Miriam or Eva would ever see their parents and older sisters. I imagine that Ava and Miriam felt very fortunate and perhaps some relief being able to stay together at least. Ava said that pretty much right when she got off of the cattle car from the train, that a Nazi soldier came running, yelling, twins, twins. He ended up asking her mother if they were in fact twins. She told him that yes, they were. And another soldier came from what seemed like the middle of nowhere. He pulled her mother away from them 
practically ripping her children out of her arms. And the last image that she has of her mother is her mother with so much pain in her eyes. I'm guessing she was also probably very terrified leaving her children knowing of the things that went on at the camp. After being processed, Ava and Miriam were brought to their barracks, which of course was nothing special. Dingy, dirty barns basically with hard wooden shelves where the prisoners would sleep. On the floor were scattered remains of three dead children. Can you imagine for a second seeing that? She had never seen death before, so that's traumatic enough. But then to see three dead kids on the floor in your living quarters, I would be thinking, this is it. This is where I die. But to herself, Ava made what she called a silent pledge. That she will do anything and everything within her power to make sure that she and Miriam walk out of that camp someday. They will not end up dead on the floor. They will survive. On the morning of the day after their arrival, they were awakened from sleep by Dr. Yosef Mengele, who was also referred to as the Angel of Death. The two girls became part of the now famous doctor's science projects, basically, along with over 1,000 other sets of twins. These twins were called the Mengele twins, and what happens next is not only tragic and heartbreaking, but completely disturbing. Each morning, Mengele would take a head count to see how many, quote, guinea pigs he had for the day. For those of you who are not English as a first language, if you aren't familiar with the term guinea pig, by calling them this, it was like saying they were his lab rats, his test subjects. Ava recalls getting blood draws. They would put the band around both arms, though. From her left arm, they would take her blood, and from the right arm, they would do a minimum of five injections. From my understanding, the children never found out what was being injected into their bodies and what they were being examined for each time. Just that they were being injected and they were being examined. One time, after a visit to the lab, Ava became very ill. She tried so hard to hide that she was ill. Instead of tying her arms, though, for the blood draw and the injections, this particular AM they took her to a side room to take her temperature and to see if she had a fever. She said she knew that she was in trouble at this point. Mengele and five other doctors walked into the room. He looks at her chart to see what her fever has been. And while laughing says, Oh, too bad. She's so young. She only has two weeks to live. That makes me sick to my stomach first off. Okay. Ava recalls agreeing with him, but she also recalls refusing to let herself die. You see, if she died, Mengele would give Miriam a lethal injection and perform autopsies on both of the girls and then compare them. She said that she could remember crawling because she couldn't walk and she would wake up on the floor of the barrack. Now, 
I'm not sure if she would randomly fall asleep because of how weak she was or if she was just sleeping on the floor at that point because she was so weak and sick that she couldn't get up to the place where she slept. Either way, though, how horrible, right? Well, even while she was in and out of consciousness and in between life and death, she kept telling herself, I must survive. I must survive. And then after about three weeks, her fever went down and she started having normal temps again. She went to tell Miriam, but saw her sitting on the bed, staring off into space. She asked her what had happened. Miriam responded that she could not and would not talk about it. There had to have been something very horrible happened to her. Like maybe she was taken advantage of or something. Like obviously she's already been. They are using her body as a science project, but I mean in other ways. I think you get what I'm saying. She was a small child and there were male guards and male doctors. I think she was violated in a different way. But in 1945, the Germans were facing defeat and they ended up bringing a huge group of people from Auschwitz to another camp. They ended up leaving a lot of people behind, which I don't know if they were planning to come back and get them or just let them die, but they left a decent sized group behind. Ava and Miriam were actually part of that group. And... The Russians came and freed around 180 children and many adults from Auschwitz. For a short while, Ava, Miriam, and the other children were placed in a convent that was acting as an orphanage at the time. Shortly after, a good friend of their mother's was found, and she gladly took the girls in and raised them as if they were her own. As adults, though, Miriam was often ill. She became severely ill with kidney infections that would not respond to any antibiotics. When the doctors finally tried finding out what was going on, they found out that Miriam's kidneys had never grown larger than that of a si the size of a 10-year-old child. Her kidneys ended up starting to deteriorate. Miriam's doctor pled with Ava to find her Auschwitz files. So... Ava was on a mission to find those files. She reached out to people all over, including the United States, but nobody replied to her. She recalls doing everything she could, including flying to Israel where her sister was living and donating a kidney to her. She was still desperate, though, to save her sister's life. But in 1993, her sister passed away from cancer that had to do with her kidney problems. Though this devastated Ava, she just could not find it in herself to give up. If she gave up now, her sister's fight for health and her death would really be for nothing. No. She had to keep going. She made it her lifelong mission to find answers as to what happened to her sister and all of those children back at Auschwitz. She advocated. She picketed. She stood in front of crowds behind a podium trying to get justice for her sister and herself and all of the other kids. 
but it was clear to her that nobody really cared. Or maybe they didn't understand why it was so important now. It's over with. It's done. It's the past. But either way, she started to give up. If there was a rock bottom in this situation, she had hit it. I just want to take this moment to let you guys know how grateful I am for having you listen to the things that I find interesting because it shows me that you also find them interesting. But I also want you to know that if there is something that you would love to hear on the podcast, let me know. You can email me at kelveda at gmail.com. Again, that's K-E-L-L-E-V-E-D-A at gmail.com. Please tell me your idea. I will give you a shout out and I will do my very best to give you the best episode that you've been waiting for. Please also rate the podcast. If you love the podcast, rate it five stars so that it starts showing up for other people. This is not about me. I don't really, I don't really care if I make money off of this podcast. I just really enjoy doing it. So if you could share the podcast on your social media, uh, tell friends who love podcasts to check me out. Um, And if they like it, they can share me too. I really enjoy researching things and I really enjoy telling the truth. I enjoy telling other people's truth. I enjoy just random bits of information. And I'm guessing that since you listen, you do too. So please email me any ideas. You can find my page on Facebook and you can like it. Please give me five stars. Thank you for listening. Now back to the program. One day, Ava had an epiphany. She remembered that there were other doctors than just Mangala. She had previously met a Nazi doctor while she and Miriam were working with a documentary crew to bring awareness about the Mangala twins. She was nervous. She had her own experiences with Nazi doctors, and obviously the experiences were traumatic, but she had to find out. So, she traveled to meet with Dr. Munch. However, she ended up feeling very disappointed when they sat down to speak, and he said that he never worked with Mengele, and he had no idea of the whereabouts of Mengele's files. But he had more to say to Ava. Apparently, he was stationed outside of the gas chambers. When people died in the gas chambers, he would sign one death certificate giving no names of the people, just a number of the amount of people who were murdered. Ava recalls him being very remorseful and telling her that this is a nightmare that he lives with every single day of his life. Ava invited him to Auschwitz with her to make the same statement that he had just made to her. He said he would love to go. She had found it very strong of him 
to be recording the deaths at the gas chambers, and she found it very strange that she felt this strong desire to thank him for doing that. She decided to keep this thought that she was grateful to him for doing this to herself because she didn't want anybody being angry with her or judging her or trying to change her mind. She decided that maybe it was time to start forgiving. So she sat down and wrote a letter to Dr. Munch, forgiving him. However, she wanted her English professor to tell her if it was all correct and sounded right. When she was done, her professor said, You forgive Dr. Munch, that's great. But your issue isn't with Dr. Munch, though, is it? Your issue is with Mengele. Ava recalls going home, looking in the dictionary for some nasty, mean words then reading them all out loud to the imaginary version of Mengele that was standing before her in the room. And after reading the nasty words, she said, Despite all of that, I forgive you. She said that the decision to forgive him changed her life. She and Dr. Munch ended up going to the 50th anniversary of the release of the Auschwitz prisoners, and she said that this trip rather than being sad and filled with anger, was filled with healing instead. Ava traveled around a lot, speaking at colleges, doing interviews. She wrote books. She was a public figure because of her struggle with her past, and just in case you want to know the names of her books so that you can read them, here they are. Surviving the Angel of Death, The Twins of Auschwitz, The Power of Forgiveness, I Will Protect You, Echoes from Auschwitz, and Mercy. So the book actually says, Plow Quarterly Number 7, Mercy. But I feel like it's just called Mercy. So it might be either or. My apologies for not knowing the answer. If you know, please let me know. Ava Moses passed away July 4th, 2019, while on a trip to Poland, accompanying an educational group she was planning to visit Auschwitz with. She was preceded in death by her parents and three sisters, and she was survived by her husband, Michael Kaur, until October of 2021. Her... Son Alex Kaur, 61, and her daughter Rena, 59. I really don't believe that anybody would have blamed Ava if she just could not forgive Mangala for what he did. He took her twin sister from her. She had said she was not prepared to live in this world without her sister. Now, I know it's not the same thing. Obviously, their tragedy is very tragic for sure. But I remember a few years back when my sister had to have emergency surgery due to two large blood clots in her lungs. The surgeon had told me he had never seen anybody with blood clots that large and actually survive. And she had one in each lung, both the size of an adult fist. 
I remember the thoughts that were going through my head while she was in surgery. I was the only person there with her at the time because of our mom had, having to travel four hours to be there and my sisters all living far away. My boyfriend at the time was working, so I had to ask him to leave and get the kids and feed them pizza and just let them watch Netflix or something. I remember how freaking scared I was and how even today talking about it, I just want to lay on the floor and ugly cry. But she got through her surgery. She's healthy today, other than the fact that we found out after the surgery that she has an autoimmune disease that caused the blood clots. But she has that under control now. And she's older than me, and she's probably healthier than me. I remember thinking morbid thoughts, though, that whole time that I was sitting alone in the waiting room. You know, like, what if she dies? What am I going to do without her? Oh my god, what will her kids do without her? I never thought I'd be somebody with a sister who died young. I never thought I'd be someone who had a fear where my sister's kids would end up. The list goes on and on. I spiraled big time. And when I got home and after my mom had taken the kids back to her to their house with her for the night, I remember laying next to my boyfriend on the couch and sobbing for a very long time. To this day, I'm still so grateful that she got to stick around. That we found out about this illness before it had the chance to kill her. All of that being said, I cannot begin to imagine being in Eva's position. She obviously always felt the need to take care of her sister, and she never seemed to resent that need. It was just something that she needed to do, and she did it for her twin sister, her other half. So all I can say is I cannot imagine the hurt and the anger she felt towards Mangala. I can't imagine the thoughts going through her head on the way to Israel to donate her kidney to her sister, or the thoughts going through her head when the cancer was diagnosed, or when her sister was in her last moments, and when she finally passed away. It takes an extremely strong person to go through that type of stuff in adulthood, and especially after the childhood that they had. But then, to have to continue to deal with that trauma that was caused on both of you mentally and physically. I don't know if there is a word for how strong that makes a person, but I do know this. Forgiving the man that handed your sister her death sentence when she was just 10 or so years old, that kind of strength has got to be inhuman. Thank you for listening. This has been Things I Find Interesting. I'm your host, Calveda. Until next time.